This is Talk Is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Yeti. Thank you Sitka Gear and Yeti for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Well, good afternoon, Blaine, and uh, great to see you. Day two, I'm just getting spoiled. I get two days of Blaine Calkins. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I'm glad, Kyle. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. It's been a whirlwind couple of days, but um, yeah, it's just uh, one of those things in the, the day of the life of an elected person, I guess. So you're getting an inside uh, window into what that looks like. Well, it's inspiring. Like, I just can't, I, I was overwhelmed by it. I, you know, you, you had the event last year. Um, I couldn't make it out for it, and I just this year it was a priority. And I just the energy in that room, and you know, you you brought together such a diverse group of individuals from all across the country, from Newfoundland to British Columbia, outside the country, um, even people that can't vote for the Conservatives. Uh, you brought together fellow uh, lawmakers. You brought a bunch of MPs in there. Um, Bob Zimmer, um, you know, Mel was in there. Yourself, um, uh, Raquel was in there. Um, and just amazing, like just a phenomenal group of people. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what the Conservative Hunting and Angling Caucus is and what you guys do and, and your leadership about that. So let's just kind of talk about it from a high level, what that's all about. Sure. So the uh, Conservative Hunting and Angling Caucus uh, started a number of years ago. It's probably uh, over over 10 years ago now. Um, and it was... Um, there's always been MPs here that, of course, like to go hunting or fishing or have been active uh, in their either their education or in their careers uh, doing uh, you know conservation work but it really was formalized when uh, Robert Sopak uh, came down here from uh, Manitoba and decided to put put a, a formal um, package around it if you if you will and, and basically um, give a sounding board for not only MPs and senators who are interested in this but for all of the various organizations across this country who participate in, in hunting and fishing or uh, the outdoor way of life and it's just grown from there so depending on um, how many um, how many MPs uh, we have in the House of Commons we've had well over 50 MPs and senators and even now with only um, with the official opposition status we have over 50 MPs and senators who are members of the Conservative Hunting and Angling Caucus which is amazing because we only have 15 senators or so so yeah that just uh, goes to show that um, MPs and senators from across Canada, they know what's important uh, to to Canadians, and it's this is not a rural-urban issue per se. There's people that live in downtown urban centers that love to go hunting and fishing, and there's people that live, of course, out in some of the most remote rural areas that it's not something that they necessarily choose to do. It's something that's just part of their way of life. They, they wouldn't know how to do things any differently because they, they live next to where they uh, get their food from. So... Um, yeah, it's just a formalized effort, and um, it's an important group of people because uh, regardless of what people do uh, necessarily for their day job, and for some people hunting and fishing is their day job, um, <clears throat> uh, there's there's millions and millions of Canadians who participate in this, and it's, I think, one of the, for, for those of us who love it, it, it's something that's not only cathartic, but it's, it's just grounding, and uh, because everything that we do is part of the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're out there in the physical world. Uh, we observe nature at its best and at its worst, and um, I, I think that's what gives um, this group of, of folks uh, particularly keen insight into um, 
into the natural order of things, and uh, it's just it's just a pleasure to to be a part of that process. So you're the chair of the caucus. When did you take over in, in that role? Have you been in there? I know you've been for a few years now because I've been corresponding with you. But how long have you been at that? Uh, well, it's, it's, I, I, you know, I couldn't go back and put my finger on the date. But when when uh, Bob Sopak was here, the, the, the uh, former member of Parliament, him, him and Mel Arnold and I were basically part of the leadership of that team. Then Bob uh, Bob retired, and um, we had a great new colleague in his place, but. Um, then Mel and I and Bob Zimmer and a few others, uh, basically uh, Chris Lewis, who is uh, an outfitter himself, is a member of the caucus. So you know, we basically uh, picked up uh, where where the previous group left off, and we're continuing forward with it. And I'm, I'm actually thrilled now that uh, that, our, that our new leader, uh, the Honorable Pierre Polyev, has actually recognized you know just how valuable, not only from an economic perspective, but from a cultural perspective, and and just the um, the the um, like the realities I talked about earlier, just how many people participate in the outdoor way of life. And uh, so he's asked me to be the Shadow Minister for Hunting, Fishing and Conservation, which I think is a first in, in Canada. So um, it gives me an opportunity to not only stay engaged, but it reinforces what we've been doing as a Conservative Hunting and Angling Caucus all along. Well, it's always inspiring too that you have someone leading that shadow ministry as somebody that's a hunter and an outdoorsman and an angler, and you know you you've you've spent your life doing that. So it's not that you know it was just somebody was plugged in that role that wasn't qualified. You're overqualified. So it's fantastic that we have you in that role, and you're you know you're so inspiring in everything that you do, right? So it's well, it's yeah. it's exciting to see that. So you know it's good to have a hunter representing hunter interests in Ottawa. Well, I love it, right? I mean, so for those of us that um, that uh, like to go hunting and fishing, I mean, this is what we do. This is where my, you know, if I was <laughs> if I was counseling somebody on how to uh, how how to grow uh, their wealth, I would say don't don't buy fish hooks and uh, <laughs> and bullets. But you know, it, it's um it's just something that we love to do, right? So this is where um, this is where you know if you if you're not allowed to work specifically in what your passion is on a daily basis then obviously you you spend all of your free time wherever you have it uh, pursuing those passions and that's uh, that's what I do I mean it's not it, it's it's not something I just think about once in a while it's something that uh, when I have time when I don't have to be here when I don't have to be in parliament when I don't have to be doing uh, the specific duties uh, that come with being a member of parliament I am I'm out in the woods I'm out on the water uh, enjoying time with my friends and my family and um, yeah just just taking in all, all the splendor that we have in this. Like, we are so blessed as Canadians to have uh, this vast, vast landscape, much of it, much of it still very uh, pristine uh, and in a, in a natural state. Even our farmlands and our pastoral uh, uh, settings are great, um, you know, uh, places of abundance. They're, it's very productive landscapes. Uh, so you know the, the wildlife, the fish, the birds, everything that's there. It's just all we have here is opportunity, and I think that's what the real passion is, and that's what the real focus of the hunting and angling caucus is: is to make sure that we uh, we do have that opportunity for all, uh, for generations to come. It's um, it's a really important thing. And make sure we create that abundance, keep that abundance of um, fish and wildlife and species that are um, that are available to us. Protect the habitat and conserve it for uh, for all time. So we, we just yesterday had the event, and part of the event, it was a multi-part event, but the, the first part of the day was an outdoor symposium. And, uh, you know, there's some very topical issues. And, and the cool thing was is it wasn't partisan. It wasn't like, 
you know, you, you need to vote conservative. It was all about the issues, and we and it was a symposium too, and it truly was um, reaching out to the stakeholders. How many stakeholder groups was there? I heard like a couple dozen or something like that. And well, there was over eighty people in the room. That included uh, at any point in time a dozen MPs. But yes, yeah, so there was lots of groups that were uh, invited. So your wildlife federations at the provincial level. Uh, Organizations that represent uh, fishing, sport fishing, uh, the BC Sport Fishing Institute, Pacific Salmon Foundation, uh, you know, your, your wild sheep societies, wild sheep foundations, um, basically anybody that's uh, organized, your professional outfitter guides and outfitters from across uh, the country. So, yeah, so anybody that's involved in hunting, fishing, or, or conservation, and uh, creating, like I said, creating and ensuring that abundance is, is invited to participate. Look, um, uh, not everybody can make it, and I get that. But as we continue to build and grow, I want to uh, I want to have a couple of days, and the the, the hope would be to have a lot of focus uh, to build um, momentum as we go forward, uh, to make sure that we're not forgotten, to build that political um, that that political powerhouse per se, where not not everybody's on the same page as far as what they're doing. For example, the the folks that look after. Uh, the Wild Sheep Society or Wild Sheep Foundation are very specifically focused on sheep, of course, but I mean, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, everybody has got their own areas of interest, but there's a common thread between all of them, which is to ensure that we have access, to ensure we have viable populations, to ensure that we have the ability to continue to, to hunt or uh, fish, whatever, whatever the organization happens to be. So that common thread that binds us all together is what I'm trying to build a political, some political um, momentum around to make sure that not only are politicians listening to us, but we have to get the broader public. Um, the broader public has to continue to accept that it's um, that it's reasonable, and not only reasonable, but it's actually um, it's, it, it makes scientific sense, it makes economic sense, uh, and we have to we have to continue on making those arguments and, and making those presentations uh, to the broader Canadian public who doesn't hunt or fish, so that we have the uh, the ability to continue to do so, that we can continue to have that acceptance. Um, uh, because uh, the, the alternative uh, might actually sound better, which is, uh, you know, you, we're going to save animals by not doing any, anything with animals, but anybody who knows anything about how the natural systems work knows that actually active management is going to get you far better results than just putting circles around vast areas of water or land and saying, uh, you know, we're going to pretend that Mother Nature is going to take care of all of this in a, in a little island in the sea of of uh, everything that um, that man is doing elsewhere in the world, and, and pretend that it's going to be okay. We we just know that the the effect of that is is usually not good when it comes to outcomes for certain species of fish and wildlife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was interesting. You know, you you brought together a very diverse group and and some very um, influential and important people and and forward thinkers in our industry that were there uh, yesterday. And then of course we had the MPs there, uh, as you mentioned. Bob Zimmer was there. Mel Arnold was there. Yourself. Um, and it was fantastic to hear the, the different perspectives, the different issues, the things that um, I think the party is looking at that is of concern that, you know, that maybe needs to be addressed. We talked about C21. We talked about uh, one of the things that kept coming up was predator management. Um, and we even had, I think, species at risk was on the list there, but we didn't even get a chance to bite into that. Uh, so that was one of the, my thoughts where, like, um, I would love to have seen more. Like, and, and you know, you said to me last night, well, what, what did you think? And I said, amazing, we just need more of it. So mm -hmm. um, expanding to multi-day would be fantastic. It just, I felt that there was 
we're just scratching the surface on some of those issues. But um, I guess maybe, Blaine, maybe we could jump into a few of those things about, um, you know, some of the things that the Conservatives are concerned about that, you know, that you'd like hunters and anglers to be more proactive about um, some of those issues. So I don't know if there's any, you know, uh, I think Bob and Mel tackled some of those things yesterday, but um, what are some of the things that, you know, as, as the Conservative Party that are you concerned about from a hunting and angling perspective, and yeah. what can we do as uh, constituents, as voters, to try and move the needle and try and change the trajectory and some of these things that we care deeply about? Well, the first one is um, we have to get public acceptance, and I think there still is broad public acceptance, and it was encouraging to see when it comes to um, hunters being able to, you know, use use their firearms. Um, uh, so the the line was crossed clearly when when the government uh, of the day and I'm not trying to be terribly partisan here but uh, the government <coughs> right now um, you know went went too far they didn't understand that um, through the, whether, whether whether you agree with what they're trying to do or not with uh, with uh, what they what they what they terms uh, so-called assault uh, rifles um, or assault style firearms. What they um, what they did is they stepped into it. They 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 entered the hunting world because they simply don't under, understand. They don't understand that a that a hunter um, a rifle that's in the hands of a hunter is a hunting rifle. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter what shape it takes. Doesn't matter what form it takes. As long as it meets the legal and technical requirements of the province or territory that you're hunting in, that's your hunting rifle. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Uh, if the stock is synthetic and it might look like a, a tactical rifle or <laughs> and, and that's where they, they, they just don't understand they don't know and uh, they they and for them it's a political argument um, I would argue that that's a scare tactic and a political argument to get people to vote for them to uh, to advance a political agenda and when they cross that line um, into the the largely into the hunting realm when it comes to you know numerous semi-automatic shotguns and uh, long guns that that people traditionally hunt with uh, whether they're Aboriginal or otherwise um, the broader public actually changed its opinion about what the government of the day was doing to the point where the government had to had to basically do a, a massive climb down from what they were trying to do and that's in large um, uh, large part due to the fact that Hunting is still seen and viewed by Canadians, whether it's uh, you know uh, Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples having their right to to hunt and fish, or even just broad the more broad acceptance of the fact that Canadians uh, do um, do actively hunt, that created that that climb down. So that's reassuring to me. So that tells me that while hunting still is broadly accepted. Why don't we take advantage of this opportunity? Because it's it's really it's really there. Like it's just a couple steps away from being from uh, from being taken away by a government of the day that again fails to understand or doesn't want to acknowledge um, um, that hunting and fishing is is a important fabric of our society. So there's that issue. So that was that was encouraging for me. But we're also seeing a number of other uh, issues that are coming to the forefront. And one of the one of the things that uh, I think is of concern to some people, um, the, the last uh, conference of parties on biodiversity, uh, COP15, which was here in Montreal, talked about um, a global, there's a global initiative um, called 30 by 30 and uh, 25 by 25, 30 by 30, which means that countries um, basically sign on to this notion um, where <clears throat> they, they agree to 
preserve uh, the natural state and habitat of uh, terrestrial and aquatic and ocean environments uh, and the, the deadline is 2030 to have that 30%. And it's not just any 30% here and there. It has to be 30% of each major ecological zone or, you know, it doesn't make sense to, for a country that has, you know, a, a vast Arctic region like Canada do all of our pr preservation in the Arctic region just because there's nobody there. So uh, we would be obligated, in theory, to, to have 30% of our mountainous areas, 30% of our grasslands, 30% of our Arctic, all of this would be under some type of preservation style model and countries do have the flexibility to, to determine what that looks like uh, but one of the things that I'm concerned about and a number of my colleagues are concerned about down here is there are negotiations going on right now with the government between the government of Canada, First Nations and other organizations, provinces and territories uh, to meet their 20, uh, 30, 30 by 30 targets and we're not necessarily as hunters and angling groups not everybody's at the table participating in that conversation so when the government does sign these agreements or some some over 60 agreements that they've um, that they've uh, listed on the government of canada website we don't even know what the text of those agreements looks like so we're, we're going to be doing more digging into that and see if we can get some clarification on what that looks like uh, because the North American uh, model for wildlife management, many people don't don't necessarily know the history, but we're, it's a very rare thing in in the world. Uh, nor, uh, you know, Canada, and the United States do things very differently. Where uh, if we were in other parts of the world, if there was an animal on your property, that animal, even if it's a wild animal, is your animal because it's on your property. Well, here in Canada, it's not. It's a common public resource. The fish in the water, the, the animals on the land, the, the birds in the sky belong to everybody uh, under the uh, care and control of uh, either our provincial, territorial, or federal governments. So uh, it's to be managed to the benefit of everybody. It's a public resource, a common public resource. So uh, we just have to be sure that when we're going through this 30 by 30 process, I don't think anybody... Uh, I think everybody would generally agree that having provincial parks, national parks, areas of refugia is is not always a bad thing for some species. Uh, but we have to get back. You know, is is it just preservation? Is it, does it mean that we don't actively manage anything that's happening in there? Does it mean um, that uh, that we still have access, for example, or is it a non-access, or is there a restricted access? Places that we used to be able to go. Uh, on, on an all-terrain vehicle, for example, to go to go to a hunt is if that gets put into a, t a 30 by 30 uh, area for preservation, does that mean off-highway vehicles? So the the question is about the definitions of how Canada can meet that, and frankly, we actually don't even know right now. Uh, I don't even think we actually have an inventory of various municipal parks. We've got uh, provincial parks. We've got national parks. We've got recreation areas that have certain designations and protections. We've got easements through organizations like Ducks Unlimited and, and so on there, where there's a conservation easement on a piece of land. Does that count where you still have cattle grazing, but you don't have the ability to say drain the wetland or anything like that because the easement says that that, that wetland's gonna be there for migratory birds. Does that count? And how much of that land do we actually have? How much of that is under those easements and if that's the case, maybe we're already at our 30% right now. Uh, so how can you have a target when you don't know what your baseline is? So there's lots of questions that we have. Um, and uh, we're, we're trying to get a handle on it right now because it is a, a fairly uh, ambitious goal. And it's not that far away. I mean, 
it's only seven years away when uh, yeah. when we're supposed to achieve this. So if we don't even know where our starting point is, how do we know where the end line is? And what does it look like? Are we transferring um, uh, th- through this process, or what, what 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 are we what are we giving away? What are we giving up as hunters and anglers? What are we gaining as hunters and anglers? And does the the amount of pluses uh, that we would get out of this um, equate to the the minuses that we might take in a few areas? So there's more questions than there are answers right now, and I want uh, I want hunters and anglers and those who want access to our our backcountry, um, our wilderness areas. Uh, we should be paying attention to this. Well, there's two things that come to mind, and two things I hadn't realized yesterday when we went into these this, this symposium. Uh, one of which was that if we look at the U.S., for example, they've completed that baseline. They know exactly where they're at, or while well, they're in the process of completing that baseline. I think Shane Mahoney or maybe um, uh, Bob Zimmer spoke to that, but the U.S. is continuing um, conducting that baseline, so they they will have a number where we aren't doing that baseline. We're not investing in it. So we really don't know what that number is for starters. And then the other thing that I think Bob had mentioned yesterday during his presentation was that hunters and anglers are at the table with the U.S. government um, around 30 by 30, but we're, we're not widely represented in, that, in this current 30 by 30 discussion. So it's a little bit concerning in that regard is that, um, you, know, you know, yeah, do, do we create all this refugia, we do all this great thing for wildlife and then have absolutely no access and to Bob's point yesterday, I think there was a discussion around, could we do it without, you know, with still having, being consumptive users? We still have hunters and anglers in the backcountry still accessing that and still do the same thing, but not uh, restrict us from that access. Because as we know, there's special interest groups that don't want us out on the landscape. So uh, those are two things that were red flag, mm. flags for me and scary. Well, some of the groups that uh, don't want us or that we believe don't want us out there um, hunting and fishing are some of the groups that I know are at the table right now with the government of Canada uh, making these proposals and uh, being part of the process, whereas other organizations are not invited. So, um, and not only are they not invited, we, like I said, we don't know what the nature of the agreements are. Is there, Are we transferring... Are we simply including people from a consultative um, perspective on this? Are we transferring management to another level of government, for example? Are we even transferring governance to another level of of, uh, of government? So um, there's a lot of questions. There's more questions certainly than there are answers. And uh, if we don't um, if we don't take a closer look at this quickly, a lot of things will happen, uh, and then we'll be asking why didn't we do something. A couple of years ago, when we had the chance, so that's that's uh, one of the things that we're trying to raise some, um, like I said, ra- raise some uh, concerns over, and um, we, we need people uh, who like to go hunting and fishing to know that this is this is coming, and, um, and the government of the day has, has ensured that it's gonna it's already started, uh, and we need to know what it's going to look like and how far it's going to go, and try and get the the outdoor community at the table they should be part of the conversation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one thing that was interesting and during the symposium yesterday you you had you know an opportunity for stakeholders to speak other MPs mm-hmm. and it truly was a symposium so it was fantastic that you know some of these issues that and you know there was some it was it was obviously there was uh, conservation <coughs> groups there um, MPs, uh, but also gun manufacturers, for example, and so it was a great opportunity to hear different perspectives from different individuals that and different groups that had, you know, different interests, but were all, you know still cared about hunting and angling and conservation. So, very diverse group of people, and it was really really interesting that 
you know, like you said, this was an opportunity to be heard too. Anyone that wanted to could get up and talk about the issues of the day that were of concern to them. So, uh, yeah, it, it was great. Um, like you say, we had uh, firearms manufacturers, distributors, uh, retailers uh, at the table because uh, if hunting um, uh, becomes uh, uh, something that um, is um, there's less of it if the governments of the day decide that they're going to have less opportunity for hunting that means it affects people's businesses it, it affects people's livelihoods it affects how uh, how you know the status quo of what we're doing today and we've seen it uh, we, we see right now the um, government of the day's policies have have shuttered businesses and um, have caused a lot of problems uh, we had um, well earlier today we had uh, the industry the the, the Canadian sporting arms and ammunition uh, industry, uh, which represents all of the manufacturers, distributors, and retailers uh, across this country, would nor we would normally have three or four hundred people, and the Stittsville range would be completely filled up. Uh, and uh, today, it was uh, we we had basically half the volume that we would normally have because so many firearms that would normally be allowed to be at the range are no longer uh, allowed to even be there. So really, oh, it's uh, of course, yeah. I mean. Uh, it would be very common, uh, you know, six or eight years ago to go to the range and there'd be an AR-10 there. There would be a number of other things uh, that you could uh, shoot. There was still a great selection there today, but um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very, very frustrating. And of course, the transfer ban on, on handguns makes, um, there, there's, there's, no, there's nobody bringing handguns from their distribu distribution center or, or from their uh, retail outlet anymore because they don't have any. Um, and so... This is uh, certainly having an impact. So, if you own a range, if you're part of a, if you own a, a store that sells these things, if you're part of a club that used to have 500 members, now you're down to 200 members because people can't enjoy their property anymore. It affects the bottom line. It affects jobs, and we all know from the statistics. If you take a look at the statistics, it's not the law-abiding firearms community that's causing uh, the, the chaos. It's in uh, some of the streets and some of our some of our communities. So. Uh, the, like I said, this is why it really matters that we, this common thread that links us all together, that binds us all together, we got to stand up and make our voices heard. And that's what the symposium and, and, uh, and yesterday was all about. And I'm glad you were there. It was, it was great. We have more work to do, but it was, um, it was uh, another step in the journey as we continue to grow and expand. And like I said, create. The, the goal would be to create that, uh, that organization that has uh, the, political, um, the political clout to uh, to defend everybody's interests uh, when it comes to hunting, fishing, trapping, and uh, conservation across country. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. That was one of the things that yesterday kind of, I guess, organically sprouted out from our discussions is that having kind of having a uh, coalition of like-minded individuals that we're going to advocate for hunting and fishing and all all these things that are really important to us. Um, and we kind of see a little bit of that. You know, obviously, there's a gun lobby and there's, you know, outfitters have a lobby and, you know, there's these different, um, but really not a more broad-based and almost an influential voting block, per se, that, you know, you could make it a, a wedge issue in an election. It's like either you support this issue or you don't, and we're going to vote this way. And mm -hmm. you have your three million voters that were are going to elect this party because of this issue. Um, you know, and, and that obviously has to be grassroots. It's got to be driven by somebody, but... Um, you know, it was one of the discussions I seen, and it was interesting. Um, Jason St. Michaels from SCI, I was on a call with him four years ago, and he made that suggestion. He's like, SCI, we've talked about this, and I think we need to do it. And we talked about it, and of course, I wasn't one of the decision makers. He was bringing me in the loop on that discussion. But 
you know, really, I don't think anything like that exists, is there? Is there currently a voting block? Well, like that, if, if you're down in the United States, of course, they've got something called the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, and it's it's nonpartisan in, in the sense that um, they, as an organization, it, it's, um, it's bipartisan in its nature. And uh, we have a similar type of organization here. Bob Zimmer is actually the co-chair of that, uh, where we have the Parliamentary Outdoors uh, uh, Caucus. So we're, we're trying to, to build that nonpartisan uh, aspect of it as well. But really, it, it comes down to leadership and money and uh, having the, uh, the ability to get people uh, together. Look, the reality is the numbers are, the numbers are clear. Um, if everybody who hunts and fishes in Canada decided to create a voting bloc, they would basically decide the government of Canada forever. Now, not everybody's ballot box issue mm -hmm. is about hunting or fishing. There's health care, there's the environment, there's a, a number of issues that people will vote on, fiscal issues, economic issues, and so on. But um, that doesn't mean that... Um, that an organized and coordinated approach when it comes to um, hunters and anglers from uh, from having that type of political uh, power, it, you become a force to be reckoned with. It doesn't mean that you're going to get your way all the time, but it does mean that you're going to be reckoned with. Uh, and right now we don't have that. Right now uh, we have uh, a lot of small groups that are doing excellent things. Uh, we have a couple of umbrella organizations, but I would suggest to you that we actually need um, it's about two things. Like I said, it's about leadership and it's about money and it's about being able to bring all those people together and having that uh, skill and ability and the, that talent to do so. So we're, there's there's people like that in Canada and we just need to get them all in the same room and working towards that goal so that the, the government of the day, regardless of what political stripe it is, uh, will listen to us as hunters and anglers and take us seriously. Yeah, it, 100%. And it's interesting. I just did a podcast with uh, Jim Shockey and Jim was... And I know you, you, are, you know Jim well, and Jim was talking a lot about um, that hunters, and, and he didn't specify Canada, but hunters in general don't care. They want to go out and be in the outdoors, enjoy their, and they, they're not great at voting. They don't, you know, show up on these big issues lots of times. So lots of times politicians won't waste their time on hunters because they're, you know, they're just not a group that's super engaged when it comes to politically. But I feel like if I look down south, you, you look at this, um, the Sportsman's Coalition, you look at in Germany, Germany, like they'll burn down the legislature over an issue. You know, they're very vocal about it. In British Columbia, you know, government waltzed in and took away grizzly bear hunting. They've, they've done, you know, a bunch of restrictions mm -hmm. and hunters just sat there and really didn't do much. So how do we articulate? We're very know, passive, aren't we? Yeah. And how do we articulate? And, you know, I think we're hunters, so we're not super <coughs> engaged. We care about things that are outdoors and doing that stuff and then we're also Canadian on top of it so you know we, we don't you know we're uh, just not super we tend to be very polite and passive polite and passive that's what uh, I was looking for without being yeah <coughs> if I may be so bold as to finish your, your sentence or your thought um, but we are we generally are a, a little bit too polite sometimes a little bit too passive on these things and I guess that's why um, we've created that hunting and angling caucus is uh, even though we're on the, it's the conservative one, which is on the partisan side of things. So, um, but that doesn't mean we can't create something that's that's bipartisan or nonpartisan in its nature, uh, because that entity does need to be uh, able to, like I said, bridge the gap, no matter what the government of the day is. But like I said, it all comes down to leadership, and it's about engaging and giving people a reason to get involved. And right now, provincially and federally, we we have reasons to get involved. We see the loss of access. We see. 
Um, the grizzly bear uh, hunt um, in uh, in uh, British Columbia, the, the government of the day even admitted when they made the announcement that this has got nothing to do with science, it's got everything to do with the emotional arguments and appeals around it. So that means that as hunters, we've lost we've lost the acceptance in the mind of the public to the point where it's a ballot box issue and the government of the day can actually win by actually denying people the opportunity to hunt. So what does that do? What is the effect of canceling a grizzly bear hunt? Well, the effect will be, obviously, you'll get more grizzly bears, which I guess what everybody, it's everybody was hoping for. Well, that's fine if you live in downtown Vancouver. Is it fine if you're trying to raise your family in Bella Coola or if or someplace else, because I can assure you, you're going to get more uh, bear-human interactions as a result of the growth of that population. Grizzly bears, of course, are predators. Uh, so if you're not managing the population of grizzly bears in proportion to the number of caribou, moose, elk, deer, or other things that grizzly bears would eat, uh, if you're not managing, even sheep, I would guess, they would go after. Um, if uh, you're not managing that grizzly bear population to a sustainable level, then you actually may end up with a tipping uh, point in, in that um, in, in the in the in nature where you've got too many of one thing, which means you've got not, not enough of others, and you don't have to look any further. You live uh, in British Columbia. Anybody that lives in a coastal community in British Columbia or in Atlantic Canada knows full well what happens when you get too many seals and sea lions. It puts uh, in, in immense pressure uh, on the fisheries, and in the case of uh, Atlantic Canada. Uh, after the, 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 the overfishing, and it was overfishing that uh, took uh, the cod out of the water, um, with, with the Marine uh, uh, Protection Act, the Marine Mammal Protection uh, legislation that came in about the same time, and all of those things creating a, basically a perfect storm, how can you manage a fishery stock when you basically take um, seals and sea lions and everything else you put them in a box and say, we'll not, we're not going to touch those populations at all. We're going to allow no hunting. There's going to be no harvest. There's going to be, there's going to be no manage, active management of those populations. And then all of a sudden we're expecting to now manage fish, which um, uh, you know, obviously are part of the whole food chain for these, these apex predators. And then we're going to be, as human beings, commercially and recreationally fishing from that same pool. How are those fish supposed to make it? Yeah. Right. So if you're not managing all of it, you can't just pick and choose what you're going to manage. So you're going to have the same problems with apex predators on land. You're going to have the same problems uh, with, with any major population cycle. If you if you don't actively manage it, you're going to get booms and busts. And um, if that's what the public wants, I don't think that's what the public wants. I don't think that's what the industry wants. I don't think that's what fishermen want. I don't think that's what hunters want. I don't. We we can actively manage these things, and we have to actively manage these things. I used to be a national park board in Jasper National Park, and the park policy is not to actively manage certain things, or has been traditionally for quite some time. So you just take a look, there used to be a, an abundant caribou herd that moved in and out of Jasper National Park, out of the park and into, um, uh, through the Wilmore and other parts of uh, Alberta, parts of Alberta, which of course would be susceptible or uh, available for resource use, oil and gas and, and forestry. Um, but at the same time, the National Park isn't managing the wolf population in the park. Mm -hmm. So everybody blames oil and gas and forestry, which probably had something to do with it, but nobody blames the National Park uh, for not uh, keeping the wolf numbers at, at a level that's reasonable. So you, this, is, this is the whole problem with not having a, a plan that actually en encompasses everybody involved. And that's what happens when you leave 
when, when you when you have just a mindset for a preservation model, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It does not work. So I mean, that's, these are the kinds of issues that we that we talk about, and we we need to make sure that the government of the day, whoever it is, is listening to everybody who's involved in this, uh, and um, because we, we want those we want caribou populations to be uh, viable. We want a viable wolf population as well. Everybody everybody would agree on on that because it's important for our ecosystem to have these components, but we just have to actively manage it. Mm-hmm. And these are the frustrating things because it gets emotional and then you when you get emotional decisions, you get you get terrible decisions. Mm-hmm. And the deci- decision to end the end the seal hunt in Atlantic Canada and the seal harvest was an emotional anti-fur uh, argument that was made and those cod that moratorium has been on now for over 30 years, those cod are not coming back because the number of seals has has, has gone from a few hundred thousand to millions. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, we know from the science that we have been able to get uh, the amount of biomass of, of fish that they eat, uh, those cod don't have a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, lots of issues for sure. Um, one thing I was gonna inquire about was, um, in, if we look down south, they have the Pittman-Robinson Act um, yeah. and a great funding model there. and. You know, I, I'll speak, uh, I guess, from a regional perspective, being from British Columbia and looking after wild sheep in BC, uh, you know, funding is just not there. We just don't have the resources we need to do. And in fact, the government, unfortunately, um, and again, this is not picking on any individual government. This was, this was a, you know, both governments are <coughs> notorious for it, of underfunding for wildlife. Um, even all our funds going from our our tag purchases and, and surcharges don't go to wildlife. Um, some of them do, but so we're woefully underfunded. Um, we look at other jurisdictions in the U.S. and they get proper funding. I look at similar jurisdictions the size of British Columbia and their per capita spending on wildlife and is just through the roof compared to British Columbia. Um, is that something that's ever been looked at federally, um, a federal excise tax or something like that? And I know, you know, you know, bringing taxes in is not is not good for for voters. Um, but I do I do know the hunting and outdoor industry would support something like that, um, an excise tax on you know sporting goods and that sort of thing uh, to support it. Is that something that's ever been considered or talked about federally that you're familiar with, or, or what's the status? Of that? Well, there's always conversations about uh, about how we do things. I mean, in the United States, the Pittman uh, Robertson Act uh, does things differently because it actually you know, for for folks that. Uh, that, that, that do know it. My understanding of it is, I mean, it's an excise tax uh, that, that is then a transfer from a, the federal government to the, the state governments. And of course, you're dealing with uh, 300 million people um, versus, you know, there's basically ground number 10 to 1 basically by mm-hmm. the Americans. The size of the California economy alone is, is as large as the, the Canadian economy. So if you take a look at, at the economies of scale, uh, those kinds of uh, tax and um, uh, programs do make sense because they'll actually give you the revenue that we need. Well, here, of course, are provinces and territories, depending on, well, the territories are a bit of an exception because they do get some direct funding for this uh, from the federal government because of their status as a territory. But, you know, British Columbia and Alberta and Manitoba and, uh, you know, Ontario and Quebec are larger provinces. Uh, we have, you know, a fairly significant tax base. Of course, they're the ones responsible for fish and wildlife management, at least uh, within the confines of those uh, provincial boundaries. So, I think the money, I think the money is there from the, as far as the amount of money that's taxed. The question is, 
uh, is enough of that money that's being collected in taxes actually being put to what we want it to be put mm -hmm. to as hunters and anglers? And again, that gets back to the, the conversation about do we have an effective political force at the provincial and federal level asking for these things? And are people prepared to mark an X uh, on a ballot over these issues? Uh, and are they informed and aware about how the decisions are being made that affect them? So uh, that comes from having a well um, a well-organized uh, machine with good leadership communicating with the hunting and angling community in Canada and creating that uh, momentum and that political power in order to change things for the better for all of us. So, um, and until we do that, we're not going, I don't think we're likely going to see uh, something like an excise tax, but uh, there's a number of ideas. Uh, people come to me all the time with ideas. They're good ideas. Where we can um, where we can make sure that the the money that we generate from our own industries from our own outdoor way of life can be used and put back into into the outdoor way of life whether it's the issuance of permits or licenses or tags and so on um, it's 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 uh, I'll give you a couple examples right now I'm not advocating for this but I you know I don't I don't think the migratory bird license has gone up um, uh, for a very long time and I don't want it to go up unless the the increase I think it's $17 right now for a migratory bird stamp I think half of it goes to general revenue half of it goes to wildlife habitat Canada um, if we were to increase that by another $10 I think people would still buy the migratory bird license but I'd like to see that $10 go all to wildlife habitat Canada not to not to uh, general uh, revenue for the government of Canada, uh, and I think hunters, by and large, if it was if that was what was presented to them, would would likely accept that the salmon uh, stamp on a uh, title sport fishing license in uh, British Columbia. If you want to keep a salmon, you have to buy the salmon stamp. Uh, that money, I believe, goes to uh, the Salmon Enhanced Salmon Enhancement Fund, and it goes to organizations uh, that help uh, with uh, with salmon recovery. And that I think that stamp is only six dollars, and a title fishing uh, license is. I think the cheapest fishing license that we have in Canada to begin with. So mm -hmm. um, we, we can have a, we can have that conversation. But uh, I, I think Canadians would be and hunters and anglers um, would be more accepting. Would certainly be more accepting of an increase in those kinds of uh, those kinds of costs if they knew that those revenues would be turned around and reinvested into the things that we love to do. So um, is is it an exciting thing to make things cost more money? No, it certainly isn't. We're taxed, frankly, enough in this country. Uh, but um, if we're going to do it, let's at least uh, do it in a way uh, that people will accept it and uh, improve the the quality of uh, it. Ma it makes it, 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 it's frankly frustrating. It's it's frankly frustrating that um, that the um, that money that would be generated through the sale. Let's just say that it's eighteen billion dollars is generated uh, annually through hunting, fishing, trapping, and, and these various pursuits. We know this from. From calculations uh, that have that have been done, studies that have been done by commissioned by the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, example. So, uh, 18 billion dollars. So the amount of revenue and the tax revenue that's generated from that is all goes into the the general coffers of the government of the day. And if that government then attacks the very industry that, so it's using the tax dollars of the industry to shut down the industry itself. It's a it's it, it, the people we, we shake our heads and we look at it going why are we paying our why am I giving my money to a government that is going that is that is trying to shut down my way of life so um, if we actually had a way to ensure that the money that certain parts of our uh, economy um, support the money actually goes to supporting uh, in return back the, you know that particular industry so um, th those ideas are things that we talk about uh, all the time so yeah, well, we'll continue to have those conversations. But again, the likelihood of these things happening without the political power 
to uh, cause it to happen. If, if people aren't prepared to vote, uh, vote for something or vote against something when it comes to the ballot box, then uh, chances of these things happening gets less and less. So that's why that's why we need to get together. We need mm-hmm. to get together and uh, and have that political uh, that political clout. Yeah, well said. Um, during our discussion yesterday morning, Shane Mahoney kind of opened up um, and, and great job of getting Shane. He's always articulate and inspiring and uh, also a little scared the hell out of you while he's at it too, which is, is a good thing because it kind of gets you motivated. To, yeah, but one of the things Shane talked about was, um, you know, our conservation space is changing, hunting and angling is changing, perceptions are changing. You know, we've always used the argument, well, hunters pay for conservation, all that stuff, and Shane's that argument doesn't resonate. So one of the things he talked about was, you know, reaching the non-hunting public and communicating and, and evolving to as hunters and anglers on how we, on what we do. Uh, daunting task, for sure. Um, and any thoughts on, on how we can do that better, what we can do better, so we can get that yeah. broader acceptance? I think the, uh, the general sentiment coming out of the room and uh, the, general, the general theme, so you take a look, uh, at least pre-COVID, um, you take a look at what uh, where the trends were and who who's buying hunting licenses. And uh, I was talking to the uh, Angelo Lovardo from the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters yesterday as well. And he, he's we're seeing an uptake actually in the number of people buying hunting licenses. Well, who's buying these licenses? It's definitely, uh, of course, people entering. Um, younger people tend to enter. People who've already been hunting all their lives so don't need to uh, to go and take the hunter training courses. So you generally see younger people, but the number of young women actually uh, taking up hunting, uh, not necessarily rifle hunting, but whether they're hunting with a bow or uh, a crossbow. So what are the barriers uh, that we have at the provincial level? Like, does, does every province allow you to use a crossbow, for example, uh, to go hunting? Not, every, not my province doesn't, unless you have a medical, you have a medical rationale to use a crossbow. Uh, you, you can use a compound bow, there's a season for that. Does every province and territory allow uh, seasons for uh, primitive uh, weapons like uh, um, like a black powder season um, so that people will have more opportunities to access people who might not be interested in being rifle hunters but are interested in doing other things so if that's uh, you know we have to have that conversation I'm not sure we're having those conversations right now in every province and territory and why are young women uh, in, um, uh, coming out of the woodwork and uh, getting more involved in hunting well you ask them you talk to them you find out what's motivating them it's a it's a protein they want to acquire a protein source that's uh, not genetically modified that's uh, natural that's free roaming um, and that's what they want to provide for their family and that's that, that that's food right mm-hmm. so uh, by and large I think society still um, very much understands the notion and concept of uh, hunting uh, for for sustenance and for food so if we're if we're if that's the case, then then we actually have um, the the road laid out. The path is in in front of us about how we do that. So if we're going to do this for food and strictly for food, and if that becomes the uh, the winning the winning argument uh, for the next uh, for the next little while, then we of course have to make sure our messaging and make sh- make sure that our arguments are all centered around um, the winning the winning issue um, for us. So. Uh, but again, that requires time, it requires effort, it requires people paying attention, it requires organizational structures and leadership to identify what the trends are, where people are going, and uh, make sure that we uh, stay at the front edge of that, uh, that parade wherever it happens to be going so that we can keep the momentum uh, for ourselves to go hunting and fishing, whatever our motives. 
uh, happen to be. But you know, that's the most of the people. I mean, most people hunt for food. Most people go fishing. Actually, uh, not everybody does, but a lot of people go fishing for you know. You, you put some back, but every once in a while, you want to keep one and take it home for the barbecue as well. I mean. Um, you know, you, you, it's fun to go out and catch 20 shark salmon in a day, and if you keep one, great. Um, and if the rest get uh, successfully put back for somebody else to catch, or if they get to go back and spawn, that's great too. So, um, you know, but that, that's I think where the uh, where the argument is going to lie for the for the near future. Um, and we need to be proud about this. We need to be loud about this. We need to let people know that it's that it's okay, and we need to showcase and highlight um, uh, the young people that are getting involved in this and the women that are getting involved in this. Uh, because they 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 have that influence and they have the ability to champion the cause alongside the rest of us that are in the industry. Mm. Yeah, <coughs> very well said. Um, and one of the things that I kept thinking about yesterday, we were talking about thirty by thirty, and um, you know some of the concerns around you know some the negotiations around thirty by thirty and whether or not consumptive users will have the opportunity to use it. But you know we have shared interests, right? We you know that we take for example the non-consumptive user in the backcountry, the mountain biker, the uh, hiker, and they have very similar <coughs> pardon me very similar interests that we do right you know they're not taking anything off the landscape but they're out there using the landscape and if they're not allowed to access the area either you know snowmobilers you know you talked about uh, did we talk about that in the was that one of the issues we talked about was yeah it was, yeah, it was brought up. Bob brought that up with the yeah. snowmobilers in British Columbia and the caribou and you know that was a big wedge issue there so you know if we have allies out there that maybe aren't consumptive users that aren't hunters and anglers that have concerns that that we do too uh, that maybe don't necessarily support some of these things that aren't good for hunters well it all depends on how it shakes this is this is why we don't we don't know we don't i don't know what i don't know right so uh that's why getting access to these agreements and and what the um what the terms of reference are for these 30 by 30 uh, portions of land that have been uh, allocated uh, to meet these um, these international goals. So, but it, just as much as somebody can become an ally, they can also we they, we can also be wedged on these things. For example, we say they say, well, oh, it's okay to mountain bike, it's okay to hike, it's okay to do completely non-consumptive things. Well, then that pits that group against hunters and anglers, as we would have a more consumptive approach in in the things that we would want to do. So, uh, yeah, people. This it can be used to be divisive. It can be used to be uh, collaborative and it can be, and uh, inclusive. It all depends on the government of the day, which is why it's so important to know what the terms of reference are when it comes to uh, how these uh, thirty. What what's thirty by thirty? What does it mean? What 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 do you need to do in order to have this land or this uh, this uh, water body or this this area meet that uh, meet that thirty by thirty objective? What are the who who who's going to win? Who gets what they, who gets what they want and uh, and who's left out, uh, and I think that's that, that's just the concern. I'm not trying to like I said I'm not trying to say that we're we're gonna not be able to hunt or fish, but we might not be able to hunt or fish. Yeah, I don't know. It's not good that we're not at the table and not going. This is the problem. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Um, okay, so I, you've been very <coughs> kind with your time here, and I, I know you've you're, you've got a lot on the go. But but just one last thing before we wrap up here is, what can uh, Canadians do to look after their needs? What what, are the, what do we need to do? How do we? What's a? Do they? Yeah. What can we do? Basically, what do we need to be improving? Yeah. So we we like I said, uh, it's going to take. It's going to take people in, in leadership roles stepping up uh, and and creating the 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 organization and the, the strategy to go forward 
So I'm going to be helping out uh, with that as best that I can. Uh, it's going to take organizations such as the one that you're with, uh, being part of that process and encouraging others to be part of that process. We need to identify people in the media who will have uh, who will be objective with us. Uh, we have our own media outlets that already talk exclusively about these things, but I'm talking about in the, the general mainstream media. We need to be able to get our message out there to the, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to sing to somebody other than, the, than our own choir. And we need to uh, make inroads there and cr make sure that we, uh, uh, that, um, that our message is heard by those so that we create that feeling of confidence and acceptance uh, in the broader community. Uh, about what it is that we're doing. We need to obviously be paying attention to what's happening on social media because so much information is out there right now on social media. We have to make sure that we have a presence there so that we're also not only defending our interests but promoting uh, what it is that we do, generating interest and getting more people um, uh, considering or not considering doing what we do but at least accepting the things that we do. So there's a lot of work to do and of course uh, creating the political uh, the political clout that we need. Um, and keeping our people energized and informed, and uh, and and ready to do what's um, ready to do what they need to do in order to ensure that we can hunt, we can fish, we can trap for generations to come, and pass along the the great inheritance that we have as Canadians to our children, to our grandchildren, um, to the benefit of everybody. Sounds like we have our marching orders. We do. Well, thank you, Blaine. I can't uh, so. uh, articulate enough how important this is to be part of this process and be down here and to meet with you and everything that you do for everything that I care about. Well, yesterday was just uh, just another beginning, so we're, we're going to continue building that momentum. So I'm glad that you're here. Please pass along my best to everybody back in British Columbia. I will for sure. And again, uh, just congratulations on a fantastic event. I just uh, so inspiring and something really that uh, to build on for sure. And the food was pretty good last night. It was phenomenal. <laughs> and your chief of staff was feeding us with her bear. How that's cool right. is that? Yeah, that's right. Chris uh, went out and harvested a bear just so we would have something for the event, and I think everybody liked it. We had, I think, I think the uh, the the rarity we had last night was that we actually had wild sheep. So so we had big horn cool. sheep, and that was from our good friends at the Wild Sheep Foundation, Alberta. So In Alberta, yeah, I think that was right. Matt Mellon's. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's his sheep or not. <clears throat> uh, well, it came out of his freezer, so we'll assume it was his. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Shout out to Alberta on that one. So. Fantastic. Thank you, Blaine. All right. Thank you.